I'm just going to tell you right now. When you preach or when you study God's word, I often think of it this way. It's like, like picture behind me is like a mine, like a gold mine. Preaching, preparing to preach is like climbing down into that mine. Sometimes you get lost down there. But when you come out, what you hope to come out with is treasure. Because that's what God's word holds, is treasure. And I'm telling you, I'm, picture me right now coming out of a mine, filthy, dirty, and telling you, guys, it doesn't happen like this every week, but I hit the mother load. And I don't know how I'm going to do it. So I'm going to do, by the Spirit of God, I'm going to give you the best I can from this, and eventually we'll just cut it off at around 40 minutes or so. Because i got a lot here. There's treasure here. You with me? Here we are. We've arrived at the most important moment in all of history, most important moment in all of history, the death of Jesus. And we know that Jesus died right there between two criminals, that awful suffering that he endured that we've been speaking about, that physical suffering, relational suffering, emotional suffering. He suffered just as he lived. He died just as he lived in the midst of sinners. And I want to draw our attention to Jesus' words. The synoptic gospels, that's the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record different sayings of Jesus on the cross. John doesn't give us all that the other gospel writers do. He gives us what he deemed important to tell us in, in, in telling the story this gospel account of Jesus. And why did he tell us this? We're going to get his purpose. I've been telling you this all along. We're going to get it in the next chapter. He told us his purpose. He wrote this so that you would believe in Jesus and what, church? Have life. You should know this better than this by now. In his name. That's why, that's why he wrote this. He wants you to believe. John would be sorely disappointed if you wrote his account and then concluded, I don't believe. He's writing this that you will believe and then enjoy eternal life with God. That's his intent. He draws our attention to Jesus' words on the cross. And in particular, I want to look at a phrase that John repeats. Remember, in Bible study, it's always important to notice repeated phrases. If the, if the writer repeats himself, you should underline that. You should make a note of it because he's emphasizing something. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. They put a sponge on the sour, in the sour wine on the hyssop branch, held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. John is highlighting this word, finished. What is finished? What's finished? John's saying, Jesus is saying, it, something is finished. What's finished? That's the title of this morning's sermon. 
we're going to look at some things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. The Greek word for in a, it is finished is tetel, tetelestai. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but either do you. <laughs> tetelestai. It comes from the verb form of the Greek word telos. That word actually translates a little bit differently than finished. It actually translates the end or the goal. It means an action that has been totally completed. Check it off. Cross it out. A synonym that actually might be better to help you here at Brandywine Grace, here in Downingtown in 2022, understand what Jesus was saying there would probably be accomplished. It is accomplished. What's accomplished? If you think it is finished means I'm going to die. You don't understand what Jesus is saying. This is not just kind of a reservation. Death wins. This is, it is accomplished. With nothing left on his to-do list, Jesus gave up his spirit. Christ spoke very clearly, emphatically. In chapter 10, verse 17, he said, I lay my life down that I may take it again. Nobody's taking Jesus' life. Jesus is offering his life for you and for me. And when his mission was accomplished, when his to-do list was done, when the atonement was complete, he crossed that off his list and gave up his spirit. This is not, church, we will be missing it if we think that this is like this defeated, depressed moment. And it probably didn't sound like Jesus on the cross barely whispering, it's finished. It probably sounded more like a shout of victory. It's finished. I did it. I did it. I accomplished everything. Everything that the Father gave me to do to seek and save lost sinners. I did it. Check it off. What's finished? I want to give you three things, and, and you could make a, a list of a hundred things, but I want to give you three, and then we're going to talk about how they can apply to our own lives. So, what did Jesus finish? What did Jesus accomplish? The first thing was he accomplished was Jesus' obedience to the Father's will. Jesus' obedience to the Father's will. If you've been listening carefully to the preaching through this series, one of the things John keeps highlighting over and over again is Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. He keeps saying, he even said something like, my food, what a weird thing to say, but he said, my food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus is all about obedience to the Father. There has never been a human, Jesus was a man, that has so embraced, so fully, 100%, fully, completely embraced 
this determination to obey God over and over and over again. Even in his suffering, even there at the garden where he was pondering the suffering that he was going to endure, he, he, he prayed, if, if there's any other way, Lord, if we could work this out any other way. But what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is so completely committed to the Father's will, and that has such huge implications for us. Aren't you glad, church, that Jesus was 100% determined to complete the Father's to-do list, to do the Father's will? Aren't you glad that your salvation doesn't depend upon your commitment? To follow through. Aren't you glad that your salvation doesn't depend on the person sitting next to you? Your salvation is dependent upon us, the Son of God who is 100% committed his entire life to doing the will of the Father. Amen? Jesus constantly constrained. Do you know that feeling of being constrained out of a desire to be obedient to God? Have you ever felt that? Do you know that? Church, do you know that? Do you know what it feels like to feel constrained? You should know that. You need to feel that. If you don't feel that, you may think you're in Christ, but you might not be in Christ. You should feel in your soul a, con uh, a constraining on your thought life. A constraining in the, in the things that you, in the way you speak, a constraining that, that bridles your tongue, a constraining on your actions. Why? Because you're in Christ now. Now you want to live for Him. And the flesh that still remains tries to get you to go in a different direction, but you're constrained, right? Jesus knew what that constraining commitment felt like. The only difference is He never gave in, He never, he never, he never went over the guardrail like we do so often. The significance of his entire life comes down to this moment. It is finished, Jesus said, and that meant that his mission was accomplished. He did it. His purpose in coming to the earth and going to the cross. Jesus was born to die. His purpose was accomplished. Now, this telos word can mean something else. See, I told you I got a lot here for you. This telos word doesn't just mean this idea of, it, of, the, of a goal accomplished. It also was the word used in the marketplace in Greek society. It was the kind of thing that if you purchase something, you got a receipt from this person. So you purchase a camel, okay, and you want to take it home, but you don't want anybody to see you riding Bobby's camel without a receipt that I didn't steal it from him. I bought it. So then Bobby would take a receipt, take your money, and then he'd write it out. Um, I, so-and-so, Kenny bought this camel from me, and then they would write across it, tell us. Complete. Paid in full. Jesus. When he died there at the cross, he stamped his work. He stamped over you. The receipt on your life is paid in full. What's paid? Your debt to God. 
is paid in full. Telos, complete. Nothing more that you can do to contribute to the payment that Christ has made to secure your salvation. When Jesus took the cup of his suffering, he drank it all the way to the bottom. He drank it all the way. He drank that cup that the Lord gave him. There's nothing left to drink. You might think sometimes that there's a little bit for you to drink. There's nothing left for you to drink. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The debt's been paid, church. How desperate we are for a Savior. Jesus' death, if it shows us nothing else, it shows us that we are utterly and totally lost in ourselves. We can't do anything to save ourselves. It required the death of Jesus to pay our debt. We couldn't pay it. Jesus paid it. Karl Barth says, He who can be saved only in the person of another is clearly in himself a lost man. I'm going to read that again. He who can be saved only in the person of another is clearly in himself a lost man. Translation, you are lost. <laughs> I am lost because my salvation can't be completed in me. It requires another. And that other is Jesus and he paid my debt and he paid your debt in full. Thank God. Jesus was obedient fully to the Father's will. He says it's finished. His response to the Father's will, it's finished. His response to the to-do list that, that he received from God upon the moment that he, that he entered here into humanity on earth, it's done. Did it all. Nothing left undone. Christ gives up his life at the Father's command. What a great model Jesus is. We've, he, he's, he's not a model in saving us. He, he, we, can't say, we can't look to him and say, oh, I'd like to do that for others. We can't save anyone. We need Jesus. Where he does function as a model for us is the way in which he lays his life down. We've been talking about this. He has this my life for yours attitude. We don't live that way. We live your life for mine. Your life for me. Jesus lives my life for yours. And he invites his followers. He invites his family to live in the same way. All who would live the life God has intended for us, that God has purposed for us. God has purposes in your life. You know that, right? He's got things he's accomplishing that he's only accomplishing through you. God has intentions for you. And his intentions are that you would do the will, his will, in the same way that Jesus did the Father's will. That's his desire for us as his family, as those that are in Christ. I've been thinking about something that, and I'll move on to my next point, but I've been thinking about something that Samuel Rutherford said that I read this week, or a couple weeks ago. I've been really thinking about it. 
Samuel Rutherford wrote in the late 1500s. He's probably considered a Puritan. He wrote a little book called The Loveliness of Christ, tiny little book. It's, it's, it's just incredible, his meditations on the gospel and on Christ. But I, I, I'm going to paraphrase it because you, you and I won't get it if I use the language that he used. But listen to the vivid way in which he was speaking to his own soul. He was speaking to a friend. And this is what he was telling them to do, that I think fits with this call. Like once Christ saves you, what should you do with your life? What are the purposes of your life? Pleasing him, living for Jesus. And so Rutherford said, gather up all other lovers before your soul. That's vivid. Now, some of you are thinking lovers. You know, I don't have any other lovers. No, what he's saying is, and you do, you have a lot of lovers. What he means by lovers is anything that would seek to steal and rob your affections for Jesus. He's talking about anything. So you can have, you can have lovers of soul that are things that no one would frown upon. You really like ice cream. But it could be a lover of your soul. If you feel that it gives you more pleasure than Jesus does. You can make an idol out of anything. There's other things, though, that we would be very embarrassed if, if our thoughts went on the screen, right? Or our actions and behaviors went on the screen. They're lovers of our soul. What Rutherford is saying is gather all those other lovers before your soul in light of what Christ has done to save you. Gather all those other lovers before your soul and show them the door. Out. You've got to go. And then... Strike hands with Jesus. What's he mean? Shake hands with Jesus. Hug and embrace Jesus. I'm trying to do that on a regular basis. I invite you to do that too. That's my application. That's my attempt to live a life of obedience to God. I, I, I think about it in the morning. I think about it before I go to bed. I gather all other lovers before my soul, my cravings for comfort, my laziness, my the, the, the things that I lust after, the things that I crave, I gather them up and then I say, hit the road. I'm striking hands with Jesus. I'm going to end this day striking hands with Jesus. I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to start this day, Lord willing, striking hands with Jesus. Why? Not so I can earn his love because I already have it. I want to live for Jesus. Don't you want to live for Jesus? Well, then gather up all lovers before your soul, show them the door, and strike hands with Christ. Amen? All right, let's get going. So, where are we? What's finished? Jesus' obedience to the Father's will. What else is finished? Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. Jesus fulfilled the prophecies. There is a ton of gold down in here, guys. It's amazing. I'm just going to try to hit some of them. Where are we? we got a little time here. There's so much going on here. John has like layer after layer after layer of deeper meaning connected to scriptures that are fulfilled in the cross and death of our Savior, Jesus. This was all part of God's plan. God had a plan that was unfolding. First one, Jesus says here, I thirst. Parentheses before I thirst, said to fulfill what? 
the Scripture. What Scripture? Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 15. Now, the fact that Jesus was thirsty is not in and of itself a deeply symbolic or spiritual thing. D.A. Carson said, a man scourged, so remember we talked about that, beat to within inches of his life, bleeding profusely, crown of thorns on his head. So a man scourged, bleeding, hanging on a cross under the near eastern sun would be so desperately dehydrated that thirst would be part of the torture he was experiencing. Now, Notice something. In some Bible accounts, and some gospel accounts, Jesus is offered a couple different drinks. That would be a great sermon. Jesus is offered a number of drinks. He's got the drink, the cup of God's wrath. Look at that. He's offered a drink here. He says, I'm thirsty. They, they offer him a drink, and he drinks it. But do you know there's other times where Jesus was offered a drink, and he refused it? Do you remember that? There was one, in one gospel account, he was offered, there is, after he was beaten and headed to the cross, heading to the cross, he was offered a drink of wine mixed with myrrh. It was a sedative. It was a drug. It would have relieved his suffering. That's why they gave it to you. It's like an epidural on your way to the cross. It was meant to relieve pain. They gave it to the criminals because they were getting ready to endure horrible pain and they wanted them to be able to endure it. It was, a, it was an act of mercy. Jesus refused that for you. Why? Because he didn't want anything to impede his ability to embrace fully the suffering that God had planned for him that he might fully pay the debt that was ours. He refused that. But this one, he doesn't refuse. And, and John is always seeing something deeper. Psalm twenty-two, fifteen. you can look that up later. But remember this. Jesus is the one throughout this gospel who is regularly offering himself as living water. Do you remember that? He told, he told everyone, if you drink from the water, from, from the living water that I have, he makes a promise. If you drink from that, remember the woman at the well? You'll never be thirsty again. What are you talking about, Jesus? He's talking about a thirst that is satisfied eternally. He offers himself as a satisfying drink to all who would take of Jesus, who all would take, take the living water that he offers. If you take it, you will, your thirst will be satisfied forever and ever. And on the last day of the feast, he told everyone, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. But here on the cross, he declares himself as one who is going thirsty. Why? So that you wouldn't have to. Jesus goes thirsty on the cross so that he might satisfy you with himself for eternity. Jesus, our dying friend, went thirsty for us that we might never know thirst. Aren't you thankful? Oh, there's so much here, guys. The hyssop branch. They used a hyssop branch 
Um, and don't, don't misunderstand. Like, he wasn't hoisted up onto a cross where he was, like, way up there. Like, Jesus was up on the cross and people were standing down here. He was just a little bit above where the soldiers could get that cross beam up onto the cross. So he was, like, right here. And so he said he's thirsty. And so the Roman soldiers are there, and they've got the, the equivalent of the Gatorade of their day. It's in a barrel. It was there to satisfy the soldiers' thirst. And the soldiers have mercy on Jesus. They dip a sponge in it, stick it in the branches of a hyssop branch, stick it down in there, and then stick it up there to Jesus. And he sucks on the sponge. Hyssop branch. that mean anything to you? If, you? if you read your Bible history and, and you know your Bible, the hyssop branch shows up in a real important story. The Passover, the Exodus. Do you remember? All the plagues, the final Passover. And, and, and God says to his people that he's, redeemed, that he's going to redeem out of slavery to Egypt, which is a picture for us being redeemed out of slavery to sin. He says to them, there's going to be a Passover. All the firstborn, the angel of the Lord's going to go, and all the firstborn in the land are going to die unless you take this Passover lamb and whose bones can't be broken. We'll get to that in a second. And then uh, you, you kill it, and you take the blood of the lamb and you dip it in a modern or a, an ancient Near East paintbrush, I guess, the hyssop branch. You dip it in the blood and then you paint the door frame of your home. And if you do that, then they'll, the angel of the Lord will pass over. Oh, they got the blood there. They got the blood there. Oh, no blood there. Hyssop branch. John sees some deeper meaning there. The Passover lamb is being sacrificed. And John has the soldiers using a hyssop branch to give him his last earthly drink of water. Oh, man. Then, then this one. Look at this. It says that... Uh, oh, guys... It says in verse 36, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So there was a scripture there connected to that. Then he says, and again, another scripture that says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Both of those actions, that his, that his legs weren't broken like a common criminal, like, like the criminals of the day, like the robber's legs were broken, his weren't. That was in keeping with Scripture fulfillment. Now, the reason why they broke their legs is because the Jewish leaders came and said, we're getting ready for the Passover, the Sabbath. This is totally unclean. This is going to defile the lamb. We can't have these guys hanging alive on a, on a cross. So do what you do best. Go break their legs. Remember I told you he had a little shelf on that cross where he could push up so he could get, get air. Well, if you bust their legs, they can't push up anymore and death comes more quickly. So this, and this is crazy, like picture a big, I was going to bring one today, picture a big hammer, not like a normal hammer, but a big hammer with a big heavy head on it. That's what they did. They just walked up and just swung that thing on your shins. So you can find, they, they've done archaeological digs where they find the, the bodies of crucified criminals and their, what is this, femur, I don't know what this is, but whatever this is, is shattered. Not just like a bone broke. 
shattered. Why? They shatter it, and then you can't breathe any longer. They get to Jesus, get ready to smash his legs. Yo, guys, he's already dead. Jesus died much quicker than most people did when they were crucified. Why? We don't, we don't know exactly why. It doesn't mean his suffering was less because he was suffering in ways that, that were unthinkable to all of us. But he did die quickly. Many scholars think it was because he got those two beatings. He was beat within inch of his, inches of his life. And so he was, he was more physically drained when he was nailed to the cross than the other two were. Anyway, they don't they don't break his legs. It's in fulfillment of Psalm 34:20 that the saviors, this is something that, that David wrote. My bones will not be broken. I heard some pages turning there. I love that. You go look at it and check me. Psalm 34:20. His bones will be broken. It's a ful- prophetic fulfillment. Then look on him whom they have pierced, Zechariah 12:10. It's, it's right out of the scriptures, guys. Now, now, let me just say this, because I'm going to run out of time, and your attention span is going to wane on me. These prophecies of Scripture came far in advance of the cross. This wasn't like yesterday, somebody said his bones won't be broken. Zechariah's prophetic ministry, and he wrote, he prophesied that they will look on him whom they have pierced, took place 500 years, around 500 years prior to the event we're witnessing the cross. David lived and reigned around 1000 BC when he wrote his song, Psalm 34, that the Savior's bones would not be broken. The Exodus, the Passover, took place 1300 years. Do you know what was going on 1300 years ago in this area? I, I can't even imagine that. 1,300 years prior to the cross, the exodus took place and the hyssop branch. Listen, church, everything is unfolding according to God's sovereign plan. Salvation is unfolding according to God's redemptive plan. His plans for you are unfolding just as he has determined they will. Aren't you glad you're part of God's plan? All right, let's keep going. I got a little more there, but we're going to leave that behind and look at the third thing. So I've told you, what did Jesus' death accomplish? The fulfillment of the scriptures and his obedience to the Father's will. And also, very quickly, let's just hit this, that Jesus, through what he accomplished at the cross, is he is completely revealing God's heart. When at his cross, he has completely revealed God's heart. How has he revealed God's heart? Well, he's maintained two aspects of God's heart. One, his holiness. The other, his love. The, the cross should make it clear to anyone who is confused about these things that sin is a terrible thing. How do we know that? Because it necessitated the death of the Son of God. God's holy. It shows us that all of our efforts to please him, all of our to efforts to erase our sins, all of our, all of our efforts to do enough good works that we can compensate for the bad won't work. Jesus' death shows us that we and ourselves are lost. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. Why? Because God is holy. He's not just looking the other way when it comes to our sins. He's not just sweeping them under the carpet. He's demanding payment, and that payment comes through the work of Jesus. 
There's nothing in our efforts, in all of the human story, that God can look at, find fully acceptable, or which he can say, oh, that has no need of redemption. Everything. The best thing you've ever done wasn't done with 100% pure motives. It needed, there was something in it that needed forgiveness. See how holy God is? Our sins made the cross of Christ necessary because God's holy. But there's another aspect of his heart that's revealed here. It's his love. Do you see his love, church? That he should give his only son for us? That Jesus would go to the depths of hellish, the hellish torment of Golgotha in order to snatch us back from eternal shame and guilt. Why did he do that? What motivated him to do that? Church, it was love. Not only is God, God's heart revealed in his holiness, his heart is revealed in his love for us. You've got to see the love of God. It's the, ultimate, the cross is the ultimate proof of how much God loves you, how much he loves us. The cross shows us how God has opened his heart to us. Isn't it amazing? So those are the three things that are accomplished. Let me get the band to return. And let me just offer some thoughts on two characters that appear at the end. We're going to take communion together here in just a moment. Two guys show up. I think there's application here for us. One is Joseph of Marimathea. He has not appeared in the Gospel of John yet until this moment. He appears in all four Gospels. He's wealthy. He's got a lot of money. And probably most importantly, and maybe most shockingly, is he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders that are responsible for the betrayal and handing over to Jesus to the Romans. He's a member. He's one of those guys. He's one of the leaders. That's meant to perplex you. Most of the time, if you got crucified for treason, which was one of the charges, blasphemy and treason, if you got crucified for treason, you didn't get a nice burial. They left you on the cross until the vultures pecked your flesh away and you were nothing but dry bones. Can't do that, though, because that's going to mess up the Passover. So it's not Jesus' family. It's not one of the disciples that comes and gets Jesus down off of the cross. Can you imagine Joseph of Arimathea, a religious leader with the Sanhedrin, a secret follower of Jesus, is doing something that ain't in secret anymore. You want to get sideways with the Jewish leaders? <laughs> Go do that. And we know it was daytime. It was an undercover of darkness, which is how his friend Nicodemus came the first time. He came under cover of darkness. I want to have a word with you, Jesus, because I, 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 see, I see some truth in the things that you're saying, but shh, keep it down. I don't want anyone to overhear this conversation. You know what will happen to me? Now in broad daylight, he comes with his wagon full of 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. 
What are these guys doing? They're doing what God calls every, every single one of us to do. They are identifying with Jesus as the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Where, where are you? Are you like Joseph? God, John wants you to be like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, no longer identifying with, with Jesus in secret, but identifying with Jesus publicly and then working with your life to accomplish his purposes in you to spread the fame of Jesus. Where are you? You with me? This is what God's calling for. I love this. I'll end with this. You got time for one more? Um, where did John say this? Hold on, I got to find it. John said something. He who saw it has borne witness. Verse 35. This is John writing. He who saw it, I saw it. Not me, John. He's saying, he who saw it, I saw this. His testimony is true. My testimony is true because I saw it. And I know that the things that I'm telling is the truth. That, why? It's right there, guys, that you might believe. John's, this is like John is, is, is speaking an oath. It's like he's, he's saying, I'm telling you that this is true. It's almost like he's being questioned and he's on trial. John, will you tell us again whether you think this is truth? And he's saying, I saw it with my own eyes. I'm telling you that the testimony that I'm proclaiming here is true. Faith, church, is never a blind leap. You ever heard of the term blind faith? No, that's not what faith is. Faith is based on truth. Faith is, is based on, 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 on something that is true. It's based on veracity. It's based on, us, on, on history. The, 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 everything that John says, John is not calling for you to make a, a gigantic leap of faith. He's saying the testimony is true. Believe it. Faith that we can build our lives upon, church, must be true. And you can build your lives on Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who has taken care of the sins of the world, taken away the sins of the world. And I urge you, if you don't already believe that this is who Jesus is, to accept the finished work of God, of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God for sinners. Believe and have eternal life in his name. Amen. Amen.